Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Welcome to EdTech Insiders. We've got a really special, very unusual and unique episode for you today. It's going to be a roundup of two different amazing EdTech events, three in fact, two in New York and one in California. Ben, what are the events that we're rounding up today? Well, the week that was, it was New York EdTech Week, and it was so great to connect and see so many people. At the last minute, I wasn't able to make it. So Alex, you've been our resident expert on New York EdTech Week. And then on the West Coast, we have the Stanford Learning Accelerator Conference, bringing together big names like Salcon and also the entrepreneurial community together to think about how to transform learning. You know, the whole on IQ event, the StartEd event in New York, what were some highlights before we jump into the interview? Like, what was your experience like, Alex? Yeah, it was amazing. So the EdTech Week event is sort of run by StartEd, which is an accelerator out of New York that's been going for a while, has really great you know, connections with people in the industry. It was a really amazing event. I spent a lot of it doing interviews with various entrepreneurs, which you'll hear in this episode. So I didn't get to see a whole lot of the actual stage sessions, but it, the energy there was incredible. People were so excited to, you know, be back in person, see the people they've been Zooming with for the last year, uh, connect with investors, connect with other entrepreneurs, connect with teachers. It was really like the sort of inspirational value of an event like that was enormous. Even the sort of a floor where you have the vendors who are sort of showcasing their products, which some conferences, that's not always a very thrilling part of the event. You know, you'd walk through there and come out with like, wow, you know, just be like, these were some seriously good ideas. I think there's just a lot of momentum in the space. It was really fun. And then the whole on a Q event, much more formal, mostly for investors. It's the, it was the first of the impact summit. That whole on IQ does as they go around the world. This was a, the kickoff in New York, and now they're going to Mexico. They're going all through Europe and, and, and Latin America. And uh, they announced the North America 200 companies, the EdTech companies, which you know we'll link to in this episode. That was an exciting moment. There's also a lot of talk about ESSER funding, which is really interesting, obviously very important for the next you know two, three years for the entire EdTech community. A lot of talk about workforce development and pathways, alternative credentials. I saw that, you know, the head of GA, head of Nerdy, the, you know, Chip Pasek from 2U and Jeff Maggie Giancalda from Coursera. A lot of really interesting talks from some of the sort of public EdTech companies about this moment and where it's all going. So I thought it was great. Ben, what are you seeing in California? What's been on your mind this week? Well, at the Stanford Transforming Learning Accelerator event, it's the kind of meeting of Silicon Valley research at Stanford and practitioners. And so it's a great gathering point. I think, you know, the vibe is very similar. You know, we often talk on the podcast around, you know, the market and the kind of ed tech winter that has kind of come upon us. But all in all, the energy is really positive and upbeat around the potential for impact and transformation. And I would also say this idea of cross-functional, cross-sector partnerships is really gaining a lot of momentum. The idea that you know venture capitalists might team up with philanthropy, might team up with public in- entities, I think we are seeing a lot of those lines drop. Without further ado, though, we should jump into our postcards 
what you should know about our postcard segments. We also did this at ASU GSV. They're brief snippets, so you get a sense of what it's like to be at the conference, hearing from the different voices. And we'll be back with our regular episode next week, talking about our top five and with our interviews. So without further ado, here we go. Here with Sari from I'm representing Kiva Science. Welcome to our Thank you so much. Uh, it's amazing you come across the ocean. Kiva Science is fascinating. But give an overview of how you to teach STEM. Yeah, so we feel that to get kids really engaged into something, you really have to start from the stories. I think it's also like what you are doing with your job, telling stories, and that's much more interesting than telling facts about something. So that's why we start every lesson with a story, and it's not a story about just something that happens in real life, but actually a story from the imagination world. So you can think then everything outside of the box, there's no limits what you have in the imagination world. You can think beyond what you actually have. So, so if somebody comes into human science, science and finds a lesson plan based on a story, how does it help them get into the learning experience? What is the learning experience? Yeah, so we actually have a platform for early years education teachers or then also parents, but then there is no screen for the children. So it's kind of a lesson plan in a nutshell for the teachers and educators to first go through and then immediately they can set up a lesson in a classroom or at home, even in the kitchen. So there's no expensive supplies you need or any boxes you have to order to deliver your door. So we want to make sure that the science and lately are happens everywhere. And then you would set up an activity in the lesson plan. The kids would do the hands-on problem solving. So there is a story that you read first to the children. There is a robot Coselli character who is always in trouble. So kids need to know the robot Coselli, which is much easier for the children to then do something that there's no pressure of the teacher or parents asking something. So they are helping Robocosily to find out, for example, how do rainbows form or how Robocosily can blow up balloons without having lungs or how they can fill up balloons. So you have some kind of materials maybe, if needed, or if it's about movement lessons, then you can use your own body. And then, yeah, they would do uh, activities, problem solving, and when they figure out a bit in a hard moment how the things work, then they would refer, report back to Robocosily how Robocosily can solve the problem. It sounds incredibly fun. So, people who follow education know that Finland is an enormous standout. It has some of the best education in the world. And Kita Science this year was just recognized in the very first education in the world as the best Finnish education solution for international markets. And now the most important exporting this amazing Finnish approach all around the world. Tell us about why Finland is yeah, I think the biggest thing why Finnish education is so good is that we highly trust the teachers. So teachers can really choose the tools and the lessons and everything they want to do with the children. So there's, I as a parent, I have two kids. I never go to the kids' teacher to say, like, you have to use this. And the principal doesn't say, you have to use this. So we highly trust the teachers. And that's why I think that's the key. Also, the other one is that the teachers don't do a lot of assessment and testing. So they don't do the things for the test or for the assessment. 
it's more about that they observe how the children are engaged, what are the outcomes, and they observe them in the long run. So we really try to give that kind of a mindset also here now in the US. I mean, I receive really good feedback, but I really hope that we can turn around that it's not only about that you deliver the school for the assessment of how to get to the university, it's about learning skills that are important in everyday life and social all those things not that much about tests. So so in sort of a broad brush approach you can almost see it as a little bit of a, a, an opposite approach to what we often see out of places like uh, Taiwan or India, which are very test-centered. Not that they always want to be, but the education systems tend to center around a test group, and the Finnish education system is more holistic, much more relationship-based, and that's baked into data science. You know, you mentioned you have teachers as customers. How do teachers get the data science into their classrooms? Do they they work themselves and then serve up to the districts, or do they uh, have to get one of the contract first? Yeah, so at the moment, anybody as a teacher, parent, whoever, can just go to kidescience.com and start their premium with just signing in and registering, no credit card needed. So they can start using our premium for free forever if they wish. And if they want their full access to all the lesson plans we have for the library or all the features we have, then they need to pay monthly or yearly subscription. And the pricing price is quite low, so we see many teachers paying them for their own pocket because they see the value. Uh, or, of course, it's possible as well that they ask the money from the directors or principals or leaders. Or then we have seen also solutions when there are many teachers from the same school and then they ask the license to be bought from the principal or district or somewhere to change. Many ways, but any teacher, I just have to try it out and see if it's So that bottom-up model is one that a number of tech companies attempt, and it only works when the product is something that teachers really love. So uh, it sounds like this is a product that teachers really love and trust them and gives them a lot of uh, hands-on experience. It's not it's screen-free, which is very unusual for an EdTech product. Um, I noticed you, you have a recent partnership with Netflix. Tell us about that. Yeah, so actually uh, DreamWorks Animation contacted us last year and they were looking for high-quality educational content companies that could make, for example, education content for their animation series. So they have this Gabby's Dollhouse documentary series and they wanted us to create what we already do, high-quality lesson plans, but with Gabby's Dollhouse characters. So that's how kind of, we started to talk about and we just launched it in August and it's now available on our website and platforms. So you can go to do get a size list class with Gabby and the kids. That's awesome. So it's with DreamWorks Animation, which is a very large animation company. So do you anticipate additional relationships like this where you'll be able to take uh, licensed characters and incorporate them into lesson plans? Yeah, we are like open to all different types of partnerships, not only like that we incorporate other characters like from Disney or Sesame Street or stuff, but also like with publishing houses or platforms are doing high quality content, character, but if there are companies looking for content, then we can so just a couple of final questions. Can you tell us about the founding team of Kita Science? How did you come together and what do you need to bring to the table? 
Yeah, so when I was working for big corporations for a sales and marketing manager, I had two babies in a row. I felt like I really don't want to go back there. And I wanted to do more meaningful stuff. And I bumped into my two other co-founders, me as a researcher, and I as a teacher, that they had already had five years of experience in the University of Helsinki. And they were looking at business courses to do start helping them with scaling and doing the business plan and fundraising for the company. So three ladies, we have to do this. And there was already quite a big need. So that's how we did it. So you have a working background, a teaching background, and a research background. Maybe it stands out on your, uh, on your site that you want to be yeah, I actually heard from one of the kind of a jury members that why they felt like we should, uh, or why we want them, for example, the reduced is that we have really team, the founding team, that we have all the aspects that there is a research, teacher, and also a business person, uh, and not that we have only the research, but researcher, but this is based in years of research. So we really have the input evidence. We have actually four levels of input evidence, from the user studies to peer review scientific research. So I think that's kind of like that you, we really can show that this is a good solution. But also I think that because we are not selling this the basic K-12 district sales, which is really, really slow and takes time and it's almost impossible in the K-12 sector now these days. So I think quite many of my women want is like they can really see the sales market here as well. But there is something that we can give opportunity for the ones who don't have money or the ones who have money. Really big international use as we have already paid subscribers to 30 What has been the response from homeschoolers? Well, actually, that was something that we don't have in Finland. Uh, the homeschoolers, so that market in Finland is zero. But then when we started in the US uh, doing Facebook advertising, trying to target teachers, we actually found out quite soon that when we asked, like, why did you sign up? They were like, yeah, we are a homeschool teacher uh, or a homeschool parent. And we got really, really good feedback. And we have at the moment uh, 50% of registered users of the US are homeschool parents. Uh, but actually, it's interesting. We thought that it has to be somehow toward the teachers, but we haven't seen any big difference that they don't like the things on the platform and they like the same things. So there's no differentiation that we have to work with target In our case, they are the same target So given that you have homeschool parents and teachers, sounds like in a 50-50 ratio in the US, how do you think about curriculum alignment? Is that something you focus on at all or do you have any kind of yeah, it's not that we have made this for any curriculum, not even the Finnish curriculum. It's like we are the best regulatory method and approach, no matter what is your curriculum. But we have luckily seen when we did curriculum mapping, for example, in the MSNGSS, that we really uh, well match all the standards we need in our target age group. It's just like we can say, oh, this lesson plan matches this standard, but not that we have to follow the specific standard. 
fantastic. It's so interesting. I love this uh, teacher first. You know, trust teachers, and, and they will uh, bring the best resources to their classroom. Um, last question is, you know, we're here at EdTech Week in New York City. Um, what's most exciting to you so far about being in the conference? Uh, I think to meet per, uh, people in person, but which I've seen only in Zoom, like you, Alex. <laughs> so I think that's that's the same what we have like, with young children, uh, the social aspect. I think actually being in person, being with people in person is really different. So that's totally different. You get the energy of people, meeting amazing stories, other but also here in the New York now, it's been really fun to see that I'm not going to visit tomorrow on Friday. Many friends are in the comments to see the kids there, excited about for their future lives. That's amazing. I'm sorry, from the science, we have finished the education to us all around the world for improving our, our systems. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. We're here with Chrissy McCann Flynn and Jeff Reed from Go Coach. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're proud to be here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Go Coach. You guys have been winning Shark Tank competitions here. What, what's it all about? Yeah, so Go Coach is a B2B SaaS upscaling platform for all employees. And so I was a former HR executive for over 20 years at companies like Pearson Education, many more, where we've gotten into this place where we have a skill shortage, a war on talent, the great resignation and now a recession. People don't have the skills they need to be able to do their job. So we create this all-one talent development platform that provides learning, data, analytics. So it helps get to those overall work progressions that's relatable and applicable to their job today and to their job tomorrow. Uh, and you are doing this partially by connecting them with qualified coaches. Tell us about the coach, uh, the pool of coaches you have and how you make sure that they're qualified. Yeah, the pool of coaches are part of the how. It's personalized blended learning and scale. And so everybody, we're getting a very easy data assessment to understand where the gaps are, where they need to develop, and where they need to be able to do more. And that data essentially coalesces it with coaches and content as applicable to their career journey, along with getting feedback from their coach, their manager, the stakeholder, their peers, as to how they're progressing and where they need to do more. Uh, you guys have worked with WGU Labs, which is one of our favorite accelerators. What is the relationship between GoCoach and businesses and universities? No, it's a great question. So WGU Labs is actually one of our first investors. Um, they took a great chance because they saw the need, especially with the non-traditional um, you know, online universities, OPMs, that a lot of these employees are in the workforce and how do they further you know, their career readiness and overall progression. So not only is WGU an early investor and a coach, they're also a client where we have access to order 250,000 alumni to provide them the upskilling that they need to their career. Uh, you know, we're, we're in this moment when so many people are questioning the ROI of higher ed and they really want that over 90% are there because they want to get a meaningful job. I'm curious how you see Go Coach's role in the future as sort of helping people where, at any age when they're at that moment when they need to sort of change careers to bring coaching into the conversation. 
I think higher ed, you know, there's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding, right? They provide a lot of curriculum. They provide a lot of content, but it's about how you apply it within the workforce. You know, you go to learn about, you know, a master's degree in business. What do all these concepts mean? And how do you apply it in the workforce and be able to make your job better? So we're bringing that connection through application and the how and connecting their curriculum with our content with our coaches. So walk us through what a typical coaching session might look like for a business. Sure. I'm going to let Jeff take this. Well, we start with um, all employees may come in to an initial diagnostic uh, intake survey that helps both them reflect on what it is that they want to learn more time, but also helps the coaches that they want to hear, and also we want to really scaffold their sessions and have a conversation. We build a really support for us, and have CEOs, uh, high potential partners, and managers. So I hear a lot about the personalization and it really does feel like the coaches are going to be able to customize the, the curriculum and customize how they work for every individual. You mentioned it's also blended. I'd love to hear a little bit about the blended section of GoCoach. Yeah, so when you look at all the learning and development tools out there, they're very fractured and they're very monolithic. And like you have like, you know, tons of content, but it's like where does it start, where does it apply? So that data, you know, not only connects to the coaches, but the content comes in as a reinforcement to really get to that relatability application and reinforcement. Um, it takes five to seven times just for somebody to hear something, never mind apply it. And so we're making sure it's blending the asynchronous and it really meets people where they're at and they get the outcomes that they're looking for. Right. So the blended is the live coaching sessions and the reinforcement learning that happens between the sessions. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we're here at New York EdTech Week. You're a New York City-based company? We were. Oh, no, you're, you're not. Where, where are you out of now? Um, so we started in New York City. We're scaling in Philadelphia, but we are a remote team. We have people in Florida, Michigan, Illinois, Texas, Hawaii. Um, Jeff is in New York City here. Um, but it's great to be back in New York City, um, especially at a live event. This is like a little bit surreal, um, and uh, we can't wait to pitch later. Yeah, you're pitching here at EdTech Week. It's a, quite a scene. I hope there's not too much background noise for us. Uh, you know, what, what has been most exciting for you as you've been building GoCoach in talking to your B2B clients? What do they, you know, what, what sort of gets their eyes to really light up about this coaching solution? I think what's most important, and I say this as a former buyer too, I used to buy a lot of learning and talent on the platforms and nobody would use them. What gets me very excited is that we're making money off of people using our platform and getting the learning that they need. Our adoption rates are ridiculously high, close to 90%, and usually it's about 5% in the market. And so they're getting the learning, they're applying it, it's working, and it doesn't stop. We make it very evergreen. That's the other thing the LMD platforms out there, outside of making money off of people not learning, they're all point-in-time solutions. We're very evergreen. The data continues to guide you to the next curriculum, the next map, the next coach, the next content. That's really interesting. So what do you attribute that 90% to? Is it because it's a live person? 
there's this feeling of relationship and accountability and, uh, you know, it's not a video solution. I think that that's a, a significant component of it. But, you know, the reason I brought Jeff in is that Jeff has tons of experience within education, higher ed, K-12. And it's really about igniting the learner, like, you know, I mean, to get to that product-led growth along with the overall engagement, like, you know, I mean, the usability, the finesse to it. Like, it's about, you know, being wanting to be engaged, wanting to do this, not being forced to do this. And so we've taken that combination along with personalization that I think is absolutely incredible. And well, I would, I would add to that, too. In terms of, in addition to the uh, engagement learner, we also make sure that we're not adding work to either IT or HR's plate. So as a product guy, like I get excited about trying to build very simple, easy to use workflows so that we can get people in and up and running. So adopting GoCoach doesn't become some implementation project that someone has to schedule before you can actually see the value in it. Um, and that's going to continue to be our focus. Um, you know, I've worked for a long time in EdTech, but I've also been a manager and I've used a lot of those crafty solutions too. So I look at this too from the perspective of my experience, like, what, what would I want to use in the workplace? I, um, and what's also exciting is our customers are helping to open our eyes to how we're going to help them in other ways, right? So um, a typical adoption model might be to, uh, you know, offer coaching to all their employees or to support a cohort that they want to move through leadership development. Um, but we're, they're seeing, and we are too, how we can support them throughout the employee life cycle and throughout the year. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Go Coach, personalized blended learning for both businesses and higher ed using qualified coaches through the, the IFC qualified coaches. I hope you guys have an amazing conference. It sounds really exciting. Good luck with your pitch today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. We're here at EdTech Week with Matthew Evans from Julius. Matthew, great to be here with you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, tell us about what Julius is. At Julius, we're solving the green talent thing. So today, there's tens of millions of jobs which are needed in the green economy, including up to 9 million in the U.S. alone. Right now, there have not been enough solutions to get the workforce that we need because, frankly, we have as much technology as we want. If we don't have the workforce, we're not going to achieve our common goals. So if a learner comes to Julius, what are they looking to learn about the green economy to train? There's really three pillars that we find are critical uh, for learners. First is demystify. There's way too big a gap between the number of people who are interested in green jobs and those who actually understand them and the corresponding career paths. Second is develop. We provide industry-aligned skills training that comes with industry certifications. And third is placement, placement into jobs uh, across the green economy. I would imagine that a lot of people, especially maybe younger people, would be very interested in how to enter the green economy. Where do you find your users? Do you have partnerships or how do you get people to learn about Julius? One of the things that is particularly special about the green economy is that there are jobs and career paths for everyone. So there are tons of wonderful jobs and careers if, say, you had a, a college degree. There are also amazing career paths if you don't. One of our uh, most important partnerships is with the GED, uh, where we are for the first time for their community of 200,000 high school equivalency graduates providing pathways to employment in STEM-based jobs, good-paying jobs with pathways where people can be making north of $100,000 a year without ever having to go get their four-year degree. So the GD relationship is an important one for us, but it's really more indicative, the fact that this is a very big tent in the green economy with jobs and careers for everyone. 
Uh, that's fascinating. So tell us a little bit about some of these different industries. Which industries do you, in trade associations do you work with and what types of jobs are we talking about? What's important to understand is that the green economy is not one thing. There are a number of different verticals within the green economy, each with their own workforce needs and certification needs. Our work today includes work in green buildings, which is a massive sector, huge contributor to carbon emissions. If we don't get that right as a country and globally, we're not going to solve our climate goals. We also do a lot of work in the utility world, which is a massive dependency to ensure we have electrification more broadly. And we have industry partnerships with a major association and systems level players across each of these areas, and we're adding more. But some of our systems level partners include organizations like EPRU, which whose members represent 90% of the revenue in the electric utility market. Also organizations like CEWD, the Center for Energy Workforce Development, um, an organization in Denver that we work with in green buildings, and this goes on and on. But these are really important players. If we're going to solve climate, we need to work with them at a system level. I would imagine that many different government entities, you just mentioned Denver, would be really interested in building a green workforce, especially if, as you say, many of these jobs do not require a bachelor's degree. It could be really transformative. How have you worked with governments? I think what we've certainly seen is with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and with the IRA, that there is a massive attention now being uh, focused to say that technology alone is not going to solve climate. We also have a massive dependency on people. We need people to build and manufacture the technologies, to install them, to fix and maintain them when they break. So we have seen that at large at a, at a federal level. We're also seeing that at state and local level as well. So for instance, we work with the city of Denver. Denver is very focused on its green workforce. It's a booming town. It just doesn't have the people it needs, particularly in green buildings. Julius is working to build that town pipeline for the city of Denver uh, in that vertical. It's so interesting. So when people come and get these industry certifications, where do they have to take them to be able to actually get placed into a job? Do you help them with actually landing the job as well as getting certified? We do. So we build out the employer network for them to land jobs once they're through the Julius program. And the reality is that many of these employers are desperate for, for talent. 85% of energy companies today cannot get the talent that they need. And that's even before the 9 million new green jobs projected over the next decade in the U.S. So we exist to solve that pain for the employers, but also we exist for the simple reason that without the right people, we're not going to solve climate. It's not just a technology problem. It's so interesting. So, you know, working with governments makes a ton of sense. Working with businesses makes a ton of sense. I'm curious if you've gotten any incoming interest from individuals uh, who hear about this and say, wow, you know, I didn't realize there were all these jobs in the green economy. Do you envision any kind of B2C play? We do. At this point, what we focus on is our partnership network. They have a great handle on folks who are hungry for careers and getting into jobs now and are looking for work. But we certainly see an opportunity for a B2C model. What we, what we always are focused on trying to do is removing any kind of friction for people to enroll, whether that they find us through a B2C channel or through a partner network. And so our programs are free for learners to participate through. What we're really going to do is just get them into job as a foothold into starting a career in the green economy. Do you ever envision working with university career centers for those jobs that do require a BA? Yeah, that would be another great example of partnership. I'm working with the systems to achieve scale 
Well, the BA crowd are even close with more guests. It's so interesting. So we're here in New York. It is there's probably a lot of background noise here. We're surrounded by people having conversations. What has it been like opening up and running an ed tech startup in the New York City scene? I have to say, it is so fun to be here. Things really feel like they are back in a post-COVID world. Seeing people have not seen in you know, sometimes up to kind of two plus years. So to have everyone together again feels very, very energizing, and it's great to be back in New York for this. It's fascinating. So Matthew Evans from Julius doing green economy training, placement exploration, working with Denver, the GED. Thanks so much for being here. It's a really interesting thing that you're doing and very unique. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. We're here with Nikita Gupta from Simba, which provides internship management. Welcome to the EdTech Insiders Podcast. Thank you. So excited to be here. So give our listeners an overview of what Simba does. So we're Simba, not for the Lion King, but for symbiotic relationships, and we're helping organizations manage their early talent programs, starting with internships. We're the all-in-one internship management platform. So when you say all-in-one, an intern class comes to a big company, what are the parts of the, their experience that you work through so we come into play after and after a company has hired all of their interns. So everything from the day that they sign their offer letter for the internship, engaging them, managing their projects, tracking their feedback and performance, and allowing them to connect with other interns and managers is what our platform does. It helps companies understand the ROI of their programs, helps them with better conversion rates and diversifying their talent pipeline. And then for the interns, it gives them a really great experience and a one-stop shop for their internship program. So, I mean, internship management is a pretty complicated process. You have a lot of people, there are a lot of different events, projects, there are different departments. Um, when you put it all together, what is the businesses that are your clients? Or what do they say about the experience at Simba? What, is it, what does it do for them? One of the most exciting parts about our customers using Simba is actually watching their programs grow year after year. We've had companies who have been able to scale their programs over six times. And not only in just the summer, but they're now hiring interns all year round. So they can be on a part-time basis. And also, internships is not just restricted to college students. It can be high school students, moms who are trying to get back into the workforce, veterans as well, just to name a few. So seeing them grow, seeing them able to diversify and tap into geographies that they weren't able to access before has been incredibly exciting. Internships are one of these, you know, really well-known pathways to start a new career, to get back into the workforce, to enter the workforce in general, but they're often restricted. There's not enough, there's just not enough internships to go around in many cases, and some of the really selective ones in tech companies are incredibly hard to get into, hard to get into, and top colleges. So expanding the internship population is really big deal. Tell us about you know, when employers are managing their internship programs with Simba, how do they use the data inside Simba to know whether the internships, whether the interns are maybe worth hiring at the end of their internship? So conversion rates and engagement scores are the top two metrics. They're tracking how often the intern is engaging with their managers. They're engaging with the events that are happening, interacting with other interns in the program, collecting feedback, and improving their performance throughout all of the projects that they're assigned. If they're able to track that and understand that the intern is always positive, is progressing, that means they can assign a happiness or sentiment score. And that allows them to understand the likelihood of extending them an offer to come back for full-time and the possibility of them even accepting that offer to come back for full-time. So conversion rates is number one. 
And also, we're seeing a talent more out there. Interns can get the full-time offer, but there is a six-month lag most of the time or even a one-year gap between the internship completion and then the day that they come back for full-time. So how do you keep those interns excited? How do you prevent them from reneging and joining another company? So a lot of our tools help them keep them engaged all year round outside of the program and then give them the data that they need to measure not only the success of that student, but overall how successful their programs are. It's really interesting. So for a business using Simba, there's a few different advantages. They can grow their entire class. It's much easier to manage the interns. And it sounds like there are additional tools to increase the conversion rates and, have, and then reduce the cost to hire. You know, what have you heard from some of your top customers? We've heard some great things about it. So far, the product is so easy to use. It's allowed them to really effectively cut down a lot of time, cut down a lot of manual processes, track all the data in one place, have something to show their leadership team of how successful their programs are. And because of that, they're scaling, they're offering more positions for interns, and they're effectively able to bring them on as full-time leaders and nurture them earlier on instead of having to spend a lot more time and resources going the traditional route of recruiting full-time employees. What types of companies do you assume the work We are industry agnostic, so pretty much any company that works with their interns on a computer. So you can imagine medical or construction kind of being out of the option, but we've seen great success in pharmaceutical, healthcare, fintech, education technology, retail, and so much more. In this odd job environment right now, it's just a lot of economic chaos. Have you seen any changes in how people are thinking about internships? Companies are really valuing early talent programs because they're understanding the impact that the students can make. It not only is a more efficient way of hiring full-time, but it's the most effective way of diversifying your leadership and the full-time employee workforce at the company. So we, you know, not going to lie, there's definitely been some companies who've had to cut back their internship programs due to budget concerns and constraints. But we work with customers who are really excited about internship programs and they're using them as a great way to hire back into the full-time workforce. There's been some interesting press about how unpaid internships are sometimes not the most fair. Do you, do you see a lot of unpaid versus paid internships through Simba? So 40% of all internships are unpaid, believe it or not. Simba does not support unpaid internships. We only work with organizations that pay their interns. We believe it's completely unfair to not pay your interns for the hard work they're doing. Even sometimes college credits aren't sufficient. So, yeah, we don't even engage with unpaid internship programs. And we actually actually currently have a pledge going on with companies. Um, we have many companies who are part of that pledge to promise that they're paying their interns at least $15 an hour and supporting the interns in, you know, valuing the work that they're contributing back to the company. I love to hear that. That's really exciting. I'm sure that your interns uh, are really feel like you're advocating for them uh, as, a, as a population. I totally agree. You know, one of the complaints about unpaid internships is that it also drives diversity when it's out of the internship pipeline. I'm curious how you think about diversity for your interns. Diversity inclusion is a big point of consideration for a lot of large organizations. So the fact that programs can be hybrid or remote means that companies can now hire talent from untapped geographies. And because they're able to bring on so many students and scale their programs, that means that they're starting off with a diverse workforce. One of the metrics or some of the metrics that our customers are collecting are the different backgrounds, the different pronouns, genders, location, educational background. 
to help them add to the diversity metrics for the company. Definitely. It's so key. It's helping HR leadership understand who they're going to be hiring and bringing back on as full time. Internships, actually, Simba is going to change internships and flip it over its head. Internships are not just the traditional go into the office, wear a suit, 12 week summer, sweating in the summer program. It's going to be all year round. It's going to be these professional experiences that, again, to what I alluded earlier, it's not just college students, it's anyone who's trying to get a taste of the professional world or trying to get back into the workforce. So companies were really excited about these kinds of programs, whether they call it apprenticeships or internships, um, rotational programs. We definitely see a lot of that happening more and more because it's a great way to diversify the talent pipeline and an easier way to hire on full-time employees. It's really interesting. So what I did, I'm hearing the idea of the traditional quote-unquote internship, which is the summer for college students, is really getting blown up in, in, in favor, and you're blowing it up in favor of all year long diverse populations, much more age diverse, and you mentioned the word apprenticeship, sort of a, uh, there's a, maybe a blurry line between a, a traditional internship and apprenticeship, where you're doing real work in a real context, getting paid for it, and getting that kind of experience to uh, It's really exciting vision. So we're here at Tech uh, Week in New York City. Are there anything, is there anything that you've seen here that's just really excited you? What has been, what has stood out to you at this conference? EdTech Week really shows us that there is an endless, there are endless opportunities to partner and integrate with other solutions in the same space. So first of all, it's been awesome meeting other entrepreneurs who are tackling very similar problems and who are day by day, night by night working to just make the world a better place. Secondly, it's been awesome to see that there are a lot of mentors and investors who are really excited about education technology and are putting in a lot of resources to help companies that are early stage really grow and flourish. And lastly, even just by meeting a handful of other entrepreneurs in the last couple of days, I already have ideas of how I want to integrate with other tools, bring them onto Simba, and just kind of make you know all of our experiences better and bring together this community and integrate our technologies together. Yeah, right before we started recording, you uh, had a conversation with Dr. Space. It does a really interesting product as well, and you can just see the wheels turning in everybody's minds. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here at Intech Insiders. Good luck with your pitch, and, uh, and I'm really excited to see what Simba does next. Thank you so much. Coming in from EdTech, we're here with Rachel Jordan, the head of marketing at TeachFX. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here with us at Tech Insiders. So, give our listeners an overview of what TeachFX does. So, TeachFX is a new way to think about providing instructional leadership at scale. Primarily, we're an app that uses voice AI technology to help teachers see student talk dynamics in their classroom. So, they record a lesson just on audio, and they get to see things like what kind of academic vocabulary were they using or were their students using, how much teacher talk, student talk was happening, and then also really important teaching practices that help 
create a cultural conversation in the classroom. Like, am I using wait time? Am I asking open-ended questions? You know, what are the longest stretches of student talk or teacher talk that happen? And then when you have all of those objective insights personalized, private, and in a non-evaluative way, you're kind of becoming your own instructional coach. So we teacher we see teachers use it either by themselves or we see them bring it to their coaching experience so that it becomes a much more teacher-centered cycle of inquiry. So I love that phrase, a culture of conversation. It sounds like, you know, one of the things that you're doing with TeachFX is bringing a type of data that isn't usually accessible to most people into the conversation, which is exactly the words that are being said. You can see which students are talking, how much they're talking, what they're saying, what you're saying as a teacher. What are some of the biggest insights that teachers find out when they get this data back? That's exactly right. So we envision a world where we actually shift the conversation about what data matters in K-12. You know, teachers spend upwards of 40 hours a year focusing on looking at the, out, the assessment outcomes data that comes through. There's actually no data that shows that that changes learning outcomes. What changes learning outcomes is a great teacher in the classroom. So when teachers have access to this objective data, they have a whole new view of what's happening in their teaching and how students are experiencing it. We will often hear from teachers the first time they teach a a lesson and they had no idea how much they were talking in the classroom. And they have to kind of go through all the insights and understand what's happening, how am I teaching these lessons? Does this match what my vision was for the lesson plan? Does this match how I want my students to experience my teaching? And maybe pick one thing that they'd like to work on. And what's really powerful is let's say they pick something like, I want to use wait time differently in my classroom. They can teach a a lesson a week later and see immediately what changed in their classroom. It's a completely different way of thinking about data-informed teaching practice. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. And so what are some of the ways that you visualize data for your teachers in ways that they can sort of pretty quickly digest and make sense of and adapt to, right? So the thing that people love the most, I think, is the word cloud. Um, it's so easy to just at a glance see how conversation happened in my classroom. Right? Once you've trained the app on your voice, you can recognize your voice versus your students' voices. And we deliver this word cloud that shows you know, what were the words that you used most frequently as a teacher and what were the words that your students used most frequently. You can imagine, especially in classes like math or science, where the right vocabulary really is so important. It really does show how is learning happening and what do I need to focus on on my next lesson. But then we also show things like conversational patterns. So we love to talk about you know, ping pong versus volleyball conversational patterns. And we show very simple visuals of how that conversational pattern happens. So as the teacher, am I you know, falling into the ping pong of teacher-student, teacher-student? Is that what I wanted in my lesson or did I want something else? Or am I following a kind of volleyball approach where you know, I'm setting up that ball for the students and then letting them build on each other's learning and kind of build that conversation amongst themselves? Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. So, you know, I imagine that your TeachFX was originally built for in-person classrooms, but we are in a moment of a lot of remote teaching. I'm curious how TeachFX has been affected by that change. That's very true. Yes, we have evolved really quickly alongside all the teachers who are evolving in their classrooms every day. So we were built originally to be used in in-person K-12 learning. And as soon as all of our schools went virtual, our team built a really robust Zoom integration. And it actually helped us get towards our mission even faster because one of the pillars that we're focused on is equity and education. And with our Zoom integration, we were able to start showing teachers even more clearly 
which students' voices are showing up most in their classroom. In fact, we ran a pilot program with a number of districts called Equitable Classrooms, and the data is still available today. It's the largest study that's been done that paired both in-classroom data with district-level data, demographic data, to really show at that full district level who's getting to speak in the classroom and who isn't, and then think through what can we do with our teaching practices to change that. There's tons of data out there. Research is from Rachel Lochan. It's an amazing research on why it matters to ensure that each student has a voice in the classroom and that who does the most talking in the classroom does get to do the most talking. We want to make sure we're engaging in our research. You know, I'd imagine that that type of data might be incredibly eye-opening for teachers. You know, everybody who's ever sat in front of a classroom knows that, you know, <laughs> that a few students tend to take up a lot of the airtime. The teacher themselves usually talks more than they want to. But seeing that in cold, hard data, how many people are talking and maybe even broken down by the students' backgrounds is probably a really eye-opening experience. What have you heard from the teachers who see this data? What do they tend to say? I mean, overall, whether they're teaching virtually or in person, you know, teachers definitely recognize that their assumptions of what's happening in the classroom aren't always the same as the reality. And of course, because it's impossible to have a full picture of what happens during that lesson. There are so many things happening at once, and we're all amazed at the number of decisions and micro-decisions that teachers have to make one second to the next, right? So whether you have someone observing the classroom trying to get this full picture or you're trying to get it yourself, it's just impossible to keep, keep track of all of it. So to see afterwards whether you're looking at how much to really happened, how much talk did I actually do, um, was I really asking open-ended questions, well sometimes you're the teachers, oh, I was really asking a lot of closed-ended questions there, and I thought I was asking open-ended questions, so that's why I'm not seeing the kind of conversation I hope to see among my students, and all of a sudden they're starting to examine kind of the assumptions and the implicit biases that we all carry with us into any day-to-day conversation. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you, you mentioned open and closed-ended questions as one example of where the AI can actually power and it can identify certain types of language from a transcript or you know, from a recording. I'm curious if there are others either now or on the horizon about how it's breaking down language into into uh, you know signals that teachers can use. Yeah, so we focus on open-ended questions, closed-ended questions, use of wait time one and wait time two. So are we providing you know think time? After we spoke, are we providing big time after students spoke? Really powerful ways to create a cultural conversation in the classroom and also make sure that every student feels like there's space for their voice to be heard. We look at kind of a timeline of the speech that happens that you can see at a glance when you know, student talk, group talk, silence, and teacher talk happened, and consider whether that matches the vision of your lesson plan, conversational patterns like ping pong versus volleyball. And every insight that we provide to our teachers is based in research. So we're very careful about this all being grounded in the decades of research that shows how much students need to talk in order to learn and what kind of teaching practices facilitate the kind of classroom dialogue that helps teachers. So the data that is coming out of the classroom, we're talking about recordings of the classroom and then breakdowns of who's speaking and everything. That would be incredibly useful for a teacher. Are there other stakeholders who might get a lot out of that data? Schools, districts, parents? Uh, I'm curious how if others sort of request that information and, and how you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And 
first and foremost, Teacher Hacks is built by teachers and we're built on the belief that in order to improve and change their own teaching practice, teachers need to have access to non-evaluative, private, job-embedded feedback. So when a teacher records their own lesson, that class report is private just for them. They can choose to share it if they want to, and a lot of teachers will share it. They might bring it to a PLC, they might bring it to a professional learning session with us, they might bring it to their coach, but it's not an expectation. We do partner at the school and district level. We want school leaders and district levels, district leaders to be the ones who are kind of providing this to their teachers. When we roll up that data for a school leader, an instructional district leader, a superintendent, it's all completely rolled up and anonymized. So, yes, when we partner with a district like Anaheim Union High School District, for instance, they came to us because they had set a really big goal to increase student talk district-wide. So it's important for the superintendent and the assistant superintendents and the whole team to be able to see how those talk trends are changing over time as important as it is for every teacher to feel empowered to teach a next lesson without feeling like they're going to be evaluated based on that data. I mean, when you mentioned, you know, they set a goal to increase student talk district-wide, that's such an interesting thing to hear. I, I think that that is a metric we don't often hear in education. I'd love but you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, students who talk more learn more, there's, there's a clear correlation. So I'd love to understand, you know, if a district has learning goals or equity goals, you know, how they can use that sort of talk goal as a sub-goal towards a, towards an equity or a learning outcome. How do, how do districts think about that? So the first thing is that it can't be one more thing. So you know, we often talk about how difficult it is to affect change at the district level or the school level. And it's because we think about change as something that's, you know, a new thing is being layered on top. You know, it's one more thing. Is this going to be one more thing I have to pile on to my teachers? And for us, this is about integrating into the priorities that you already have. So integrating into your instructional goals for the year, integrating into that curriculum that you're rolling out this year. For instance, we partner with uh, curricula leaders who are building curriculum that is built around creating student dialogue, especially with STEAM and STEM classes. And we're the missing piece for them because, yes, you can pull out that curriculum, you teach your teachers how to use it, you do amazing professional learning sessions that get them excited about using this curriculum in their classroom, but then what? We're the, the missing piece that helps teachers see what's actually changed in the classroom when they use these so it's, it's about integrating into your overall vision, not making it feel like it's one more thing. Yeah, one thing that strikes me about TeachFX is that teacher training programs, especially in uh, in some really sophisticated ones in Japan, say, are really focused on this kind of thing. They they record these sort of master lessons and break them down and use them as exemplars for other for other teachers. I'm curious if you've ever gotten any kind of requests for you know to look at an exemplar of like a really wonderful classroom where the talk is extremely volleyball or where the, it's super even and you have many, many different voices. Do you ever hear that kind of question of request for a, uh, a sort of perfect example? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if there's ever a perfect example, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but we do have a lot of educators on our team. And so our educators have designed and delivered their own lessons. So when anyone signs up for an account, even if it's a free trial account, 
you see demonstration lessons. So you can see a full classroom board and click through it and listen back to the insights and the moments of student talk or teacher talk, just like any other teacher might. And then we also see, as I mentioned, teachers bringing their class reports to their PLCs. So one of my favorite stories is a math teacher named Anthony, uh, who he and his colleagues will teach about the same lessons. They're all teaching the same curriculum. So they'll each teach about the same lesson, and then they'll compare notes, and they'll say, oh, you got kids talking here, and I got kids talking here. What is the question that you asked? And they're really building on each other's learning, just as we want students to build on each other's learning in a classroom where teaching That's like a true teaching community of practice. That's really exciting to hear. My final question is, we're sitting here at EdTech Week. There's people all around us. Um, what has been most exciting for you from a TeachFX perspective about this conference and, uh, and this moment? It's really hard to pick just one thing. So I've been a mentor with StartEd for close to a year now. And you know, I do these mentor madness sessions every few months where I get to connect with the entrepreneurs for 30 minutes at a time. But it's all been virtual. So it is so amazing to be here in this building full of people who are full of amazing ideas and doing new things to really innovate in K-12. It's just, the energy is incredible. And you know, there's, there's just endless possibility. Really yeah, it really is a, you know, a moment where sort of everywhere you look, somebody is doing something innovative, interesting, relevant, timely. It's been really exciting to be here. Thank you so much, Rachel Jordan from THFX. Really appreciate you being here with us at the Tech Insiders. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack.